food moves. And you look at Italian food, the history of Italian food, like you, we all think pasta pomodoro, but tomatoes are a new world ingredient. Like so much of what we think of as traditional Italian food. And I've watched Italian food change. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, Matt has a lively conversation with Sarah Jenkins, a chef and writer who is currently running the restaurant Nina June in Rockport, Maine. Matt, what did you and Sarah talk about? Anna, it was such a treat to have Sarah on the Taste podcast, and this conversation, it really delivers. I followed Sarah's career for over a decade, dating back to her amazing restaurants Porchetta and Porcena in New York's East Village. But we talk about her childhood growing up in Beirut in Italy and how to this day she returns to the Tuscan farmhouse her family bought in the 1970s for the annual olive oil harvest. We also talk about her two legendary New York City restaurants, which were two of my own personal favorites while living in the city. What a joy to have Sarah on the show. Here's Matt talking to Sarah. Sarah Jenkins, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've, uh, you know, we've like rolled in the same circles. I, I don't consider you a friend. You're more of an acquaintance, but I know your food. I moved to New York in 2002 and I lived in the East Village. And when you opened Porchetta in 2008, I felt like uh, you were speaking my language. Uh, and I want to hear about that journey. But first, I want to hear a little bit about your background because it's really interesting. You're, you're a third generation Mainer. Oh, I'm like a... 13th generation Mainer. I'm trying to do the math. That makes you, is that like some? They came over before the Revolutionary War. Sounds exciting, but <laughs> they were all like shipbuilders. Like, you know, there was a lot of limestone quarrying up there, like boat people, Amazing. like nothing particularly grand. What um, was your uh, childhood like in Maine? So I never lived in Maine, right? Interesting. Um, my father was a foreign correspondent yeah. and I was born in Maine and we went overseas when I was six months old. Um, so I lived mostly all over the Mediterranean with a little two-year stint in Hong Kong when he was uh, – he covered the last days of the Vietnam War and, in fact, was famously airlifted off the top of the embassy and, you know, mm-hmm. out onto a um, – so that was a little weird. But other than that, we were in the Mediterranean, Spain, France, Beirut, um, mm-hmm. and then Italy. While we were living in Beirut, my parents – they were friends with – a man who went on to become a really famous wine writer, although I don't think today anybody really knows him, but his name was Burton Anderson, and he kind of wrote the first book about Italian wine. He and my dad were journalists in Paris in the 60s and taught themselves about wine, and I mean, God, they were young. They, you know, it was yeah. all of that, right? And they talked about buying a small house in, in the south of France. Oh, my God, we got to do this. We got to do this. And in the end, that never happened, and he went down and bought a small house in an impoverished little village in Tuscany. Um, and then my dad went to visit him, and mm. my dad bought a house, and then, like, another journalist bought a house. Mm. Um, and so that started, like, the Italy connection. We still own that house. Um, we have now 150 olive trees that we produce a small amount of olive oil for the family at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and so he kind of eventually finagled um, a gig as the Rome bureau chief. Right. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah. What a what, what an entry into Rome society, but also, of course, the dining in Rome and the food well, culture there. It's funny because I was talking about this yesterday. I mean, this was the 70s, right? So Italy was really different. Um, it was coming out of it was it was a rising economy, but it was coming out of really the post World War II poverty and deprivation, and that was still kind of on everybody's shoulders in a way. Um, I mean, our village we bought the house in 1971. I think that electricity came to the village in 1970. And my neighbors, who were hardcore peasant farmers, did not have indoor plumbing until the middle of the 80s. So, you know, and all that's completely changed. We forget right? about the, Italy's history. We, we see the, you know, the Travel and Leisure articles from Emilia Romagna and Tuscany, and we right. don't remember that there was that post-war 30-year period where there was, it was a really right. tough place to live. And then when I was living there in the 70s, uh, it was – there was a lot of political turmoil. Uh, terrorism. I mean, they kidnapped at one point the head of state and, you know, murdered him and dumped his body on a street in Rome. Um, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of like all of that. But it was still, it was really magic, you know. Let's circle back to your mom because your mom, uh, you know, is, an, is a cookbook author as, as are you. And I feel uh, it's important to acknowledge her because she, uh, Nancy Harmon Jenkins is, is definitely a, a name that many know. Um, like yourself, but how did your mom's journalism dovetail with this time spent in Italy? Um, did she? Uh, I know you're, you're a chef, but did you're also a journalist and a writer? How, how, did she uh, instill these instincts of journalism and writing in your in your body? Well, I think I actually rejected all of that for a long time. Um, I always say I started to cook because we moved back to the states in 1981. I went to boarding school in Western Maine. There was no olive oil. Like I never really thought about the food I ate and it was just – it was horrifying. I used to lug home olive oil from Italy and like take rice from the steamer table at the cafeteria and pour olive oil and lemon on it. Like I was just, I, stunned, right? What is this? But I never really thought about what I ate or what was – you know, sure, I like this. I like that. I don't like this. <laughs> it just was, Right. Um, she actually, most of the time that we were kids living over there, uh, she was not a food writer. She had not really become a food writer. Both of my parents were super interested in food. And I think, you know, also, as you sort of do, quickly realize that understanding food is the way to understand a culture. Um, and, of course, it was fascinating. I'm, I'm, I imagine to them, in a way... Like, it took me years to understand how incredibly lucky I was to watch my neighbors transition from subsistence farming to where they are today, you know, with uh, – they have central heating in their house. We don't have central heating in our house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and just watch all of those changes, some of which, you know, frankly, are really positive. Um, yeah. And I, I got to ask about your mom. Uh, you know, some of the books that she's written covered the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And I feel like uh, is there a book of hers that you feel represents her work? And second question is, how is your mom doing? She's she, great. She's, she's yeah, great. I want to hear um, about it. I met yeah. her once at Porcina. The two of you were having a, an event and it was just so fun to catch up with right, both of you. Right, right, right. Uh, she's great. You know, she's uh, – it's hard to believe. She'll be 85 this year, but she's plowing along. In fact, I think she's – in Boston this week. This is a, I can tell from her Instagram feed, trudging around to museums and whatnot. You know? I love to hear that. That's so great. <laughs> right? 
Um, so, yeah, she's really good. She wants to do a book on Maine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Maine is kind of hot right it now. It is hot. Is, you have a restaurant up there. But what what book of hers do you, do you go back to the most? Is there something? The Mediterranean Diet, honestly. Yeah. Um, what yeah. is that book? Explain that. So it's funny because she was working on a book for many years about ethnic food in America. And it was like one of those things that, you know, she did all kinds of research on. It went on and on and on. And Harvard School of Health organized with an organization she was involved with a conference on the Mediterranean diet. I can't remember when it was. And her agent or editor was there and was kind of like, screw the mm-hmm. – um, Ethnography. The yeah. ethnography. Like you got to write about a book about this. And it was the first like time that really people started talking or at least over here about the Mediterranean diet, what it mm-hmm. was, what its health benefits were. And honestly, it's been her most successful book. Um, she redid it like maybe 20 years later. Um, and for me, it also really pulls together a lot of – the rest of her books are much more Italy sense. Yeah, exactly. And She's really a kind of a scholar in Italian and regional Italian cooking mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so – but the Middle Eastern stuff, you know, we lived in Beirut before the war and I was really young. So I have, you know, limited memories of it. But I think it was a really, really magic time uh, for my parents and their friends. They made friends that stayed in our lives forever. And we went from Beirut to Hong Kong and then to Rome, by which point Beirut had like completely deteriorated. And a lot of those friends wound up spending the war years in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, so it continued that kind of connection. I want to hear about you now because we've talked about your mother's journalism, but you have your own scholarship. But look, let's first just talk about your cooking because you worked in New York. And I want to get a sense of some of the jobs in New York that that kind of founded your 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 vision for cooking, and then we can talk a little bit about what you did in New York. So, you know, I'm constantly pulled, even today, between America and Italy. And I finally managed to get a visa, and I was working in Italy, and it just really wasn't what I thought it was going to be on so many levels. Um, and it was – there were so many walls. Really, people were always like, as a woman? And I'm like, no, kind of as an American. You know, nobody could think that I could know anything about Italian food. And I hit a point and I was like, I'm, I'm kind of done. I need to go back to the States. I'm not going to have like six of these walls are going to be gone. And um, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? I was like New York, which I'd never been particularly interested in. <laughs> I called a friend. I was like, I'm coming. I knew that I could get off the plane and get a job as a cook, mm-hmm. right? And she hooked me up with a little restaurant that had just opened in the East Village on East 9th Street called Ikopi. And the woman was Tuscan, and she was doing a little Tuscan restaurant. And uh, we connected, and I I landed, you know, let's say on a Friday. I was cooking the next day. On Sunday night, Ruth Reichel walked in the door. (laughs) Um, And uh, in the end, she didn't review me. It was the end of the thing, of her time at the Times. Uh, But her interim guy and we got two stars we were like the first two star restaurant in the east village and it was so exciting and that was within like four months of being in new york and i always say that was like the greatest way to come into new york yeah getting like a stars in the times in the in that print era it, it wow. was right Huge. right right like you know the lines out the door exactly. the like all of that um so I worked there. I mean, I worked in a lot of different places because mm-hmm. I'm a restless soul. And, um, <laughs> you know, I worked at Il Buco in 2001. That was 
I have to say, so Donna Leonard is the owner. Been on the Taste podcast. Check out that episode. Okay. We've had her in the studio. Right. Yeah. Her partner, Alberto, at the time, who, you know, I say is a big part of what Il Buco is, mm-hmm. um, also her, he was really mind-blowing. Like, he was kind of crazy. Um, but I remember going in for my interview, and, you know, this is this is the end of 2000. Yeah, because I yeah. started there in January 2001. And he's sitting there and he's like, I don't understand why we buy these bits of meat. Like, why aren't we buying whole animals and butchering it up? And like, you know, we have this and then we have that and we have this other thing, you know, and if that's what we have, that's what we have. And I was just like, oh, my God, you are speaking my language. This is amazing. Um, Their commitment to high quality Italian ingredients. I've never worked in a kitchen in America where people paid attention to all or even cooked with extra virgin olive oil. Um, They were bringing in, you know, rare lentils from Umbria, like all kinds of stuff. Which now is commonplace, of course, with with supply chains, interest in Italian cuisine. But back in the early 2000s, it's remarkable how far away we are from now. Right, right. And of course, you know, the biggest thing always about Mediterranean and Italian cuisine is it's so ingredient driven. And for a long time, that just wasn't the case here. Yeah. And so when you uh, you worked at Il Buco, but then in 2008, you introduced a food stuff, a dish, a sandwich, a, a, an experience to New York City that kind of changed the course of New York City. It was 2008. You opened a restaurant called Porchetta. And I remember the media, and I remember the lines, and I just remember everything about that place was so cool and unique, and you really made a name for yourself there. So I want to hear a little bit about that restaurant on uh, 7th Street. Is that right? Yeah, 7th Street. I lived at, uh, at A and 7th for three years in uh-huh. 02 to 05, so I, that was like my neighborhood, and right. I, I remember just the lines, and, and first off, why porchetta? Why this dish? So I had a kid, right? And, you know, no matter what you think, it's very challenging to have a child and work in a restaurant as a woman. Um, And so I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go get another chef job. You always want your own thing. A friend of mine was actually the starting chef at the Rome Sustainable Food Project. Now, I always loved porchetta. Porchetta was like this thing, this memory. Whenever I got to Italy, there's a porchetta stand uh, at the seaside town near the airport in Rome. Sometimes I'd go over there and get a porchetta sandwich, like breathe some sea air after the plane flight <laughs> and like, hit the road. What is porchetta? Let's get into that okay, one. Okay, so por- yeah. yes, porchetta is a whole roasted pig, um, a big pig usually, eviscerated and uh, restuffed with all its innards and guts and like lots and lots of spices. And it's street food. Like yeah. it's at the it's at the market fair. It's all of this stuff. Um now, I knew in opening Porchetta that, A, I wasn't going to have the space to have massive 300-pound pigs coming in and roasting them and whatnot. And I also, you know, everybody in Italy kind of knows what Porchetta is. And you stand at the thing and you're like, I want crispy skin. I want lean meat. I want fat meat. I want innards. You kind of build your sandwich how you want it. But I knew that wasn't going to happen here. Uh, now, um, the famous butcher Dario Cicchini did – a cut where he took the whole loin of the animal with the belly attached and rolled the skin around it. And I was like, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. Like, you do that, then we're getting more or less the same thing every way. um, And we don't have to worry about all this space. 
yeah. problem. And and having a big roast pig with its head on it in the middle of the East Village and like. I mean, yeah. Be, this is pre-Instagram, <laughs> remind you. Uh, yeah, this is before. Right. <laughs> but food media was really roaring then and Eater, of course, covered you extensively. And But you served it as a sandwich or plates? What we was, served it as a sandwich yeah. and a plate um, with beans and greens. And then. Over the years, we did various different, like, spins on it. It's Because I was talking with friends the other night about it, like, which was mm. your favorite, you know, sandwich. Because we wound up – we made the porchetta banh mi at one point. That was good. We made porchetta tacos at one point. Those mm. were good. Then we made the porchetta cubano, and that was, like, yeah. irresistible. <laughs> yeah, that, everyone wrote about that. And <laughs> so you, you also opened Porcino, which I, I for me was a real – was for wine geeks uh, below 59th Street who wanted to drink the Super Tuscans uh-huh. and just – have uh-huh. a great experience with uh-huh. wine, but also uh, the regional cooking that you're doing there was really excellent. And and I want to know about the two restaurants and how how did they kind of fade into the sunset? Or was it a, was it a? I've always yeah. wondered this. Like I'm happy <laughs> right. that you're here because right. I've just wondered like what happened to these two restaurants because they were so great and and really they felt like they're part of the neighborhood and that they would last forever, but they didn't. Right. Well, I think you know in the end the East Village became a really transitional. Uh, neighborhood. And there was so much, you know, it's the growth of Seamless and Grubhub and stuff like that. And so once all the press kind of died down, which it does inevitably, um, we didn't really build up enough of a delivery business. And it it just slowed and slowed. And for a long time, we, you know, we did Smorgasburg like crazy. That was like really successful. It was great. But eventually it just kind of dwindled. And honestly, I was way more involved in Porcena. Than, mm-hmm. than Porchetta. You know, Porchetta was kind of like, this should be pretty simple and function. So we closed Porchetta because there just wasn't strangely enough business, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's on us, too. We didn't do enough to develop that mm-hmm. to-go business because it's great to go. It does. It holds. It's, it's kind of shocking, but it makes sense. The East Village, I mean, the rents, but not just the rents, just the dynamic of the neighborhood changed so greatly in that right. period. And people just, you know, all those new people that moved in didn't necessarily know us from Adam. Yeah. And, you know, we weren't getting like 18 million lines of press every yeah. day. So yeah. then they had, they weren't targeted to go yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. Porcena was definitely a victim of COVID. You know, yeah. I was uh, at the end of we were at the end of our lease and we had kind of a bandage one year lease as we started to negotiate our, you know, our future. What's what's that going to look like? What are you going to ask for? Can we do it? Do we want to do it? All of that. Um, and our landlord didn't want to work with us. He said in um, in July, I think, we were like, you know, if we're going to stay, we need to reduce the rent. There's just no way. Um, and he said, this is all – I can get in somebody in here tomorrow and this is all going to be over by September. Famous, you know, famous fa- words. Right. So it is with great satisfaction that that place stayed empty for a year and a half. I yeah. think somebody's in there now or going in there. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's a, it's really unfortunate that that was the mindset for a lot of restaurants, especially in New York City during the pandemic, that there right. was not a mutual agreement that we needed to keep these establishments. Porcina was was fantastic. But I'm sure you're doing work at Porcina that you're doing. You're doing it up in Maine right now. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always, you know, it's funny because obviously I was pretty bummed about it closing, you know, yeah. and thinking about where it was. And we'd kind of gone into – 2000, let's celebrate 10 years. This is really exciting. Mm-hmm. We had all this stuff planned. Mm-hmm. But when I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, at the end of the day, what I said in the beginning about making this restaurant, I was like, I don't want to make the like most splashy, hot restaurant. Mm-hmm. I want to make a solid place that you kind of know what you're going to eat before you go in. Yeah. 
um, and you eat there two times a week because it's your neighbor, it's your hood. So I achieved that. Like I felt like at the end, that's at 100% what it was. There was like so many regulars, so many like my staff almost never changed. Like Dual dining rooms. So you had the thin bar, but then yes. you had a dining room. I yeah. love that space. Just a beautiful space. Right. Such right. a good space. Yeah. 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 Well, I I do uh, not, I don't want to end on that note because right. we've got a lot to talk about right. in terms of your writing. But let's stick with you as a chef, and I want to know what is happening up in Rockport, Maine. You're the chef at Nina June, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like I've not been up there. I need to make a trip. And Maine, I mean, my God, what a hot place right now. Right. So what's that? What's up with Nina June? So you know, I'm from Maine. I was yeah. born there. My family goes back there yeah. many generations. Uh, once I had a kid, I started going up there a lot, um, and I started noticing that there was some really interesting food stuff happening, not just in Portland. Uh, there was a Thai restaurant that opened that was mind-blowingly good Thai food. You know, the guy was Thai, but a chef already. Like, mm-hmm. he wasn't, hey, I moved to America, and this is what I can do. Not that that's, you know, not valid, but um, he was a trained chef, so the food was really amazing and, and delicious. And I was like... If we can have this in Camden, Maine, like there might be room for what I kind of like to do. Um, It's been a huge explosion in farmers moving up there. Um, So there's all kinds of amazing like meat and produce and uh, and of course the seafood's incredible Um, and an interest level. Mm -hmm. It's definitely super challenging. Like it's a huge summer seasonal kind of business and then it like slows down and slow down really painfully and originally i was like i'll close for two two months in the winter yeah the dream kind of right right <laughs> if you can build that in right now write a book right, <laughs> those yeah, two, two months yeah. the fact is that the labor pool up there is really really tight and a lot of the people who work for me can't afford to just not work for two months mm-hmm. um and so then you'd lose them. So there's a whole thing of like I stay open really to keep my my staff employed. Um, and at the end of the day, the community appreciates it a lot too. They don't like people who come up there and open for the summer mm-hmm. and close. Um, there's a lot of feeling of like are you doing it for us or, or for you, yeah. you know, in a way. It's very valid and fair mm-hmm. to have that mentality to, to say like are you here for the long haul and do you really want right. to employ or are you just like – leeching off of this the season, right? Right, right. Yeah, respect and, that. you know, I had really no idea what... I mean, I kind of... I got an opportunity. There was a, an available space that somebody had opened and built out and didn't really want to do anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to... It was, you know, really, like, let's paint a po- coat of paint on the walls and, like, go. Um, in retrospect... I probably should have gone up there and like worked somewhere through a year because mm-hmm. so much that I didn't understand, mm-hmm. you know. What was the one main thing? Well, there's no real turning of the tables, right? Like uh, that's just not a thing. And mm-hmm. even in the summer, like we rarely see people past 9 o'clock. In fact, I open at 530. I'm full at 530. If I opened at 5, I could be open. I could be full at 5 and I'm just like – I. I I don't approve of eating dinner at five o'clock. Like, <laughs> no, um, I'm in a constant battle for the music. It's really funny. I ate dinner last night in New York, and music was booming loud, like maybe even too loud. Right at my restaurant, I start the night, I set the music up, like not crazy loud, but we can hear it. Right, and you know, the minute the first customer comes in, like, can you turn the music down? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the 
you know, people are not as adventurous eaters. There's some things that I cannot sell up there, like botarga, um, unless I, like, sneak it in. But then it's really weird. We have a lot of mackerel up there in the yeah. summer, and people eat the hell out of that. And it's one of the most pungent, oily, I mean, delicious just, fish. Right. But flavor-packed, yeah. Right. And, uh, and I could never sell mackerel down in New York. You know, I'd put mackerel on the menu. People would be like, no, 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 no. So Because um, why? There's a stigma with it being like a lesser cut or just like yeah, the flavor? Yeah, or profile. like a flavor. And again, yeah, it's an oily yeah. fish. It's like bluefish. If it's not super fresh, it's not yeah. that great, you know? Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, the most amazing fish out there, really, and super sustainable right now. Absolutely. So, Nina June, what are you, uh, what are you looking to do in the next five years there? I mean, are, is it going well with pan- this pandemic? Yeah. In and I mean, out? I survived the pandemic. Sure. I got two PPP loans, and yeah. God bless, I got a restaurant revitalization fund. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We switched. We did a bunch of dispensa and takeout, mm-hmm. and, you know, and we're still doing some of that. You know, January this year, I came up with the idea of doing, like, community-supported suppers. So you prepay a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. and you call in, and you have a choice of, like, meat, fish, or veg, um, and you pick up a, a, you know, a dinner. It's got a soup, a salad, yeah. a dessert, um, and that's been really great, and I'm actually really, like, kind of excited. All the things we've tried, um, you know, pricing's going through the roof. It's really kind of disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean real estate or just everything? Uh, food, like product. Food costs, right. right. Food and costs. I'm trying to, you know, you look at that, and you look at it all, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to only feed the super rich. Mm. Um, I, you know, and again, it's kind of a mixed community up there. There's some very wealthy people that don't think twice about coming in and, you know, drinking 10 bottles of like amazing Barolo. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that like it's a treat for them to come sit at the bar and have a plate of pasta and a glass of wine. And I don't want to exclude those people. Um, So, yeah, trying to figure it out. We went to a prefix. You know, I basically split up the dining room last summer, did a prefix uh, on the deck and in the back room, and then a cafe menu up front. And that actually worked really well. Well, how fun. So you can really pick your your channel, pick your avenue. I Mm -hmm. like that a lot. I mean, one of the things that really appealed to me about Maine, and initially it really appealed to me about New York, but I do think it's kind of changed in New York. There's a lot of room for play up there. There's a lot of room to try different things out, to see if this works or that works. The, you know, the costs are lower. The real estate is much, much cheaper. You can try this. You can try that. And I felt like in New York, we were getting to a point where with rents and probably still now, it's like you had to do breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week or otherwise you were just like... And you miss one for whatever reason, a uh, first pipe and you're done. Right, right. And then, you know... I'm going to diss the health department right now. Um, they're a nightmare, mm-hmm. you know? And it's funny because I was talking with a friend about my, mm-hmm. mine about that last night. He's from Seattle. And he was like, the health department there is there to help you. In New York, it's a revenue. It's exactly. A it's a revenue. revenue stream. It's No one really like right, talks about that. I agree with you fully. We've talked about the taste podcast many. It's like a real revenue gen. Same with um, – I mean, the Department of Health, Department of Buildings, both, it's a real revenue stream for the city. Right. But I think to be a Department of Buildings inspector, you actually have to have, like, some serious, like, engineering skills. True. To be a health inspector, you pay $125 to take a class, and then you're a health inspector. And I've had people come in, well, 
I had one inspector sit and eat her McDonald's because it was the end of her day. And I, I was like, do you know how much fecal matter is allowed in that meat? You know, um, like, <laughs> I didn't say that. I yeah. thought that you like thought that. you you never. Uh, it's funny. A friend of mine, Anita Lowe, at one point <laughs> they approached her to be on like some kind of council to navigate with the health department. She was like, no way. They'll be all over me. Like, yeah. I don't think so. We all think of them as kind of punitive and yeah. petty. I want to transition to your writing because that's how we've kind of reconnected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I approached you uh, to write for taste because I, I've always admired your the way you've uh, written and articulated food. I saw you were up in Maine, so like, let's talk. Right, right. You wrote a couple great stories, but I wanted to first talk about your cookbook mm-hmm. career. Um, let's talk about olives and oranges. I, I want to uh, say, and then you wrote another one with your mother too, which right. I'm forgetting the name of, but. Olives and oranges, what's that all about? I wanna, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, right. So olives and oranges, you know, again, a writer friend of mine kind of approached me. Have you ever thought of – you know, it's funny because actually when I first really started thinking about it, Maria Guarnaschelli was like, yeah. I want to write a cookbook. You need to – not I want to write – you know, you need to write a cookbook. Yeah. I want to edit it. She was all over me. In the end, she turned it down and my agent, <laughs> David Black, Jesus. God bless him, in the beginning said – why don't we write a proposal that we can sell, <laughs> not just for Maria, right? And uh, so Rux Martin picked it up. Oh, great. Um, nice. And it took us a long time to write that book. I wrote it with Mindy Fox. and Shout with, out Mindy Fox. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And, and it was really her who said, I want to, you know, have you ever considered writing a cookbook? Are you interested in doing this? Like, um, and, uh, you know, she would have another project. I would have another project. It was kind of like back and forth. Mm-hmm. But my shtick in some ways has always been I'm a home cook who wound up in a professional kitchen. And writing that book was also really interesting. I mean, I remember some specific recipes where you're going into it the way I do it in the kitchen. And, the, and then you're like, wait, 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 back mm-hmm. up. I mean, I tested everything at home. Yeah. The best um, cookbooks are tested at home. Well, Absolutely. yes. Um, because – and there's a lot – that I get frustrated with, like sometimes it seems like you have to dumb down the recipes so that anybody can do it. And I think, well, what's the point of that? Like mm-hmm. you can have a how-to cookbook and you can have a medium-skilled cookbook and a better-skilled cookbook. Um, in the end, I think it was a really great, solid cookbook that really reflected a lot of what I think about food which is 100% rooted in my experience growing up in the Mediterranean. I love it. And and the book you wrote with your mom, what was that book? So that was The Four Seasons of Pasta. Right, Four Seasons of Pasta. Great name. Yeah. Great name. And I think it started as a concept for an online book. I mean, when, when iPads came out, I was like super intrigued with all kinds of stuff. My kid had a game that you bought these little cars and then you drove them over the screen. And I always wanted to do like – some kind of thing where you could have little fry pans and fry move them over yeah. the screen. And I was like, this is just mind-blowing. And so that was the early beginning of the Four Seasons of Pasta, that it would be a series. Um, and then it just kind of morphed into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah. it started out as a digital concept. Like, yeah, like, like we an iPad-only book? Wow. Right, like cool. a Kindle. I think everybody was kind of talking about to hell with public, you know, yeah, printed yeah, yeah. matter, right? I remember um, those days. They yeah. were... Maybe wrong. Right. (laughs) I think they were. I mean, I read a lot on my iPad, and when I'm traveling, it's like the greatest thing to load stuff up on it. It's a great feeling. I remember the years of like, you know, my mom and I have traveled a lot over the years through the Mediterranean, and like 
you know, we're book nerds and like lugging books, running out of books, Mm -hmm. uh, frantically trying to find an English language bookstore with anything that you might want to read. It's the days have changed. Right. Absolutely. So you wrote uh, two stories for taste and and, I'm. talk to you about writing more, but I want to know, um, you wrote a story about carbonara mm-hmm. and you wrote about, it, we, we really kind of worked on the angle and over time, I'm not sure if we nailed it exactly, but I feel like it really did take off and we got a great, you know, it was passed around by on Twitter and stuff. But uh-huh. what was the whole point of that, that story for you? Well, in some ways, you know, there's so much talk about who owns what in food, right? Sure. And, um, you know, I think carbonara is a really modern dish. I think it originated really in the late 50s. And I know there's the whole like, you know, the GIs brought it to Rome or what or whatever. <laughs> I don't I don't think that. But I think the richness of the ingredients is kind of emblematic of a rising economy. Um hmm. So much of Italian food is based on like, I have a stale loaf of bread and a tomato. What am I going to do with it? You know, mm-hmm. um, so and then. Carbonara, I was an incredibly picky eater as a kid. Carbonara was my dish living in Rome. I ate it everywhere. Um, And to this day, I really love it. It's kind of interesting to me how, you know, there's like it's all over and everybody's like – making ramen with uh, yeah that was kind of the point was like carbonara is everywhere. Uh, Is there a rule for carbonara? Right. And I think there are no rules, especially in Italian food. And um, I, I've i worked long and hard to kind of understand, you know, this is this and this is made there and that's made there. And then you turn around with somebody who thinks like the most, you know, traditional chef ever and they're like, oh, yeah, now I'm sprinkling it with soy sauce and kimchi, you know. <laughs> You're yeah. like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know. But it's still this dish. Um, you know, food – Food moves, uh, and you look at Italian food, the history of Italian food, like you, we all think pasta pomodoro, but tomatoes are a new world ingredient, like um, so much of what we think of as traditional Italian food. And I've watched Italian food change. Mm-hmm. Uh, raw fish is one of those things. You know, They're, They ate raw fish in Puglia traditionally and maybe on the coast of Sicily, but Nobody ate. I remember in the 80s, a friend of mine being like, what is this sushi thing? That's like the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. And now Italians are like, crudo, crudo, crudo. David you Pasternak, know? New York City, possibly <laughs> the genesis of the crudo. Right, right, right. right. But also it's all over Italy. And of, of course. course now there's so much back and forth. Um, yeah. When I first moved to the States, Italian food was Italo-American food, right? Mm-hmm. There was almost no – what I considered Italian food. And spaghetti and meatballs was the huge thing of that. And I was just like, what is this? I've never (laughs) seen spaghetti and meatballs. This is horrendous, right? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there are, there is pasta and meatballs, right? They're little teeny tiny meatballs and it's kind of different. It it does exist. But it was such an un-Italian kind of like thing. Today, like I have a friend with a restaurant in Rome and he serves spaghetti and meatballs because he almost kind of has to. And he's like, actually, it's kind of good. And it's like <laughs> the number one seller at his restaurant. So yeah. it's like the stuff goes here, comes back, you know. Well, Sarah, when, when your food is an emoji, like mm-hmm. the plate of a meatballs and pasta. <laughs> right, it's, right. It's kind of hard to avoid that. Right, The emoji right. Is, is what wins right now. Right, right. Um, what are you doing back in New York? Um, 
hanging out, seeing people I haven't cool. seen in a long time, um, and eating as much Asian food as I possibly can. Because despite our really good Thai restaurant, it's something we really lack. Up yeah, there. have you been to Her Name Is Han on Thirty First Street? I didn't go. My friends wanted to go somewhere else. So. Happens. It's always the uh, right, way. Right. We'd right. Been emailing over the weekend. Yeah. Well, first shout out to Her Name Is Han. I love right. This place. Right. Modern Korean place. Um, well, have a great time in New York. I want to ask you, we ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast, if there was a cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of deadlines, that is time, or the burden of budget, which is money, what would that book be? It would definitely be a book about our house in Tuscany. Um, the history of the house, what I've kind of, you know, what my neighbors have done, uh, the changes that have come through, and also some of what... I sometimes think I cook at my absolute freest there. I don't have to cook to please anybody but myself, really. Um, so it's not as though – and we've had some crazy over the years, some, like, crazy meals there. We did a Vietnamese Fourth of July once. Um, mm. So it's not like we're cooking traditional Italian Tuscan food there all Why the time. Why would you? You would get bored with it. Right, no one right, cooks, like, one right, food all the time. Right, totally. right, right. Well, my neighbors do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but – uh, and, yeah, the history of the village and all those transitions and changes and stories. Um, and you do a, an annual olive oil harvest? Yeah. When does I, that happen? Um, in October, late October. Nice. Uh, I go over and I pick. I mean, it's interesting. I was there before the pandemic and I picked too early and I had a really low yield. I got 30 liters. And going into this year, my neighbor was like, "Nah, there's really not a lot of olives. I don't think it's worth picking. Of course, then I got there, and he's like, oh, no, we should pick. We wound up picking so late that I got the same amount of olives because my yield was so much higher of olive oil. So, um, yeah. What's uh, what's that like? How long does it take you to pick your grove? So, Is that a grove? It, 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 yeah. It's called yeah, a grove? It's a grove. All right, um, right. It really depends. It depends, you know, how many trees we have. I mean, how many trees are loaded. Yeah. Um, what the weather's like because you have to stop. It's not good to pick if it's raining, not for us, but for the trees themselves. Um, and how particular you can you are about it. Like do you put nets down and just like kind of run through the trees and like strip down the olives or are you putting them, you know, hand-picking each one and putting it in a little basket? But generally it's about a week. Oh, my goodness. And um, it's, it's hard work, I imagine. Um, you know, I would say, and I'm not a farmer. I've never, having watched the way my neighbors lived, I was never like into that idea. I was like, that's really hard work. Um I, uh, but it's really pretty easy agricultural work. We're high in Tuscany. Our altitude is high. So our trees, you might have to get up into one of them on a ladder, but they're not, you're just standing there and picking. Mm -hmm. um, you're not bent over picking strawberries or something like that. And you so, have some wine, obviously. Uh, yes. In hand. Yes. <laughs> Although in the early days, we used to have big wine lunches, and I like eventually were like, yeah. no, 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 that's not going to work. I have to ask for the book about your, your house. What would be some of the recipes that you're thinking about? Uh, including oh a couple just to say two recipes I, <laughs> right. I, I'm just it's a great idea I hope you do it right um, I don't know there's a lot of fire roasting right mm. and uh, Tuscans traditionally had this clockwork spit that we've always had um, when I was last there it was like the pork on the on the fire on the on the spit I don't know how you translate that into like but I feel like cookbooks have also moved away from the idea that Everybody needs to be able to recreate this yeah. wherever they are. Yeah. Um, and you can put some stuff in that's like, you might not be able to do this. 
hundred percent. It's, it's I, more of a mood board in many right, ways. You right. want to like get the the framework, up, but you're not obviously executing it perfectly that way. Right. Right. Nice. Um, yeah. A lot of some of the rambling foraging kind of stuff, um, you know, and that's actually really interesting because I had a moment of thinking this is all going to go away. These old people are going to die and nobody's yeah. going to know. And then Noma kind of blew up the whole, you know, and now everybody's like, I want to forage. I'm going to forage. Yeah. I'm going to forage. So it's good. Well, I look forward to that book. Sarah yeah. Jenkins, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Matt, we're back in the studio with another Three Things segment. We're talking about three things in the past week or so that have really gotten us excited in the food universe. Cookbooks, restaurants, etc. Citrus. Citrus. Um, canned me- fish. Media. Food media. Food media for All sure. sorts of things. Yeah. So what are you really excited about this week, Matt? What's your first thing? I have three. I'll start with media. Um, we might have some cookies later, but that's the tease. So today I was online and I saw that tw- that Substack announced um, 11 new fellows to participate in what they're calling a food writer's intensive. Um, and per the company, and this is what uh, these these fellows are, are receiving, fellows will receive special benefits including a $10,000 grant, access to image licenses, design support, editorial services, creative tools, and business guidance. Okay, so I'm really interested in Substack um, and how food media has changed. I wrote about it a couple years ago. And obviously, uh, Substack is taking over an all- shapes and sizes, but the way it's transformed food media has been really cool to watch. But I was excited today to, to, to see these 11 fellows' names because there's some familiar names on this list. Who is on the list? We've got a couple folks that have written for taste. So we have Ashley Rodriguez of Boss Barista. Um, she's one of uh, 11 fellows, and she covers the coffee industry in a really unique way and has a podcast tied to it. And Leah Koenig of The Jewish Table. They both are of these 11 fellows, and I highly recommend going and seeing the 11 or the, the nine other uh, fellows um, because it's all great follows, these 11 folks. Plus, actually, sorry, let me just say there's some runners-up too. They call them runners-up. I, I don't know how I feel about being a runner-up to a fellow, but they mentioned Dennis Lee, a.k.a. Fart Sandwich. We love Dennis Lee at Taste. Love Dennis Lee, and his food is stupid. Substack is such a joy to read. We link to it often in our newsletter. But yeah, check this out. Um, these these eleven fellows. There's lots of cool things to come from them, and we'll definitely make sure to link to it in our Friday newsletter. Anna, what is your next of three things? Okay, so I've been eating out at restaurants a lot in the past week. Um, I celebrated a birthday, so I've been going out a lot. Nice, happy birthday! Is, thank you so much. Great. Um, It's a little unusual for me. I'm, like, really into cooking at home, a little bit of a homebody. But um, I've just had some friends in town. And last week, for the first time in my life, I went to Bemelman's Bar. Have you ever been there? I have been there, and I think I went there with my mom once. It's a great place to go with a mom. It's uh, sort of this historic bar in the Carlisle Hotel. The walls are decorated with illustrations by Ludwig Bemelmans, who is, like, the author of the Madeline books. Yeah. Um, And it's just, I mean, it's, like, 
fancy, a little stuffy maybe. (laughs) But the thing that I really liked about it is that if you get a drink there, it comes with a trio of snacks. Word. Wow. One of them is like a really like buttery, cheesy cracker. One of them is just like a mixed bar nut mix. And then the thing that really blew me away is that there's like a really, really good like fake butter-flavored popcorn <laughs> in the Bellman snack bag. So we're talking like UA 1996-style popcorn, like all the industrial cheese and butter flavor? I think so. It was like a little hard to put a finger on like what brand it might be, but like yeah. it was so good and just kind of like a surprisingly great match for having a martini. I feel like industrial snacks, like Ruffles, for example, go really well with, like, really fine drinks and really fine food. Like, you, when you have that perfect industrial salty snack, it, it just works. Yeah, just, like, the right amount of crunch, the right amount of salt. It, it Yeah, it can really work. What were you drinking at Bemelman's? What was your—were you Martini, Vesper, 50-50? I had, I had a, a dirty gin martini. Dirty yeah, gin. Which was good. Do they serve in like an, an extra little side, little thingy, you know? Yeah, they did, which is very charming. That's their jam. They always have that little extra, that little extra thing. I'm sure there's a technical name. I'm forgetting what it's a called. Sidecar? Is I it called a sidecar? I always wonder if that's like really... the sidecar, but it's in the sidecar cocktail. Yeah, it's the extra. It's like when you go to a soda shop and they um, make the milkshake and then there's like a little extra so they give you the metal cup. I love that. We need to get Chloe Frechette on the Taste Podcast to talk about what that little thing is. Yeah, just a whole interview of like what do you call this thing? These things. That's a reminder, (laughs) writing the note down, Chloe Frechette guest. What's the next thing on your list, Matt? Okay, so Hrishia Haraway has been a guest on the Taste Podcast episode 86 um, and I interviewed him. It was a great chat with Harishi. He's also the host of the podcast Song Exploder. He hosts a podcast with Samin Nostrat. Amazing dude. He released this wonderful EP called Rooms I Used to Call My Own. And Rishi is really uh, a real renaissance man because along with the podcast and along with the cooking and along with all these interesting things, he is a cookie connoisseur. He is really deep in cookies. He is. It's like an obsession for him. It is. And to coincide with the release of Rooms I Used to Call My Own, he partnered with this company in L.A. They're a mail-order cookie company called The Very Best Cookies in the World. And he released a very special cookie that he actually created. He, I, I know his manager, Chase, shout out, thank you for that. He sent me some cookies. I brought them in for Anna. So we both have tasted this cookie that is called the Spicy Chocstachio, right? Chocstachio? That sounds about right. Yeah, I think that's right. Oh, my God. It's really, really good. It's the best vegan cookie. It's vegan. P.S. It's vegan. It's really good. I like that it has like a soft brownie-like, like fudgy texture, which is really hard to achieve, I think, in a cookie, like once it's cooled down. It is really a great texture. You're right. I, I agree with you fully. So it's got the cookie base that's vegan. It's loaded with dark chocolate chips, roasted pistachios, and this like kick of cayenne that I think probably would piss some people off, to be honest. Probably. It's probably going to ruffle some feathers. It's nice and salty, too. Good it's, amount of salt in that cookie. It's great. I love seeing those pistachios in there. Uh, pistachios are underrated for a chocolate cookie. I feel that's a really nice nut choice. 
Um, but I love this. He, you can order it online. The very best cookies in the world. I highly recommend it. And I believe that some of the pro- proceeds are going to charity. So that's cool too. Rishi is a good guy. Anna, what's your next of three things? I have a dessert to talk about yes, too. Yes. I went to a Dame for the first time in the past week. Also, it's Whoa, a look at you like hitting <laughs> up the the Grub Street top fifty eater top hundred lists, hitting all the spots. spots. Dame is a seafood focused restaurant in the West Village, known for their fish and chips. Um, nice, nice like sort of British influence, but huh. also Spanish influence, Italian influence, like really. A lot of things happening. But this dessert that was so amazing was their sticky toffee pudding. Yeah. Which is one of my probably all-time favorite desserts that you don't see that often on restaurant menus. But it's such a perfect restaurant dessert to me. It's like something that needs to be served just a little bit warm with like a slightly warm toffee sauce. Just a little bit of, like, maybe they served it with some creme fraiche. So they call so it puddings. Good. Like, all desserts in the UK are called puddings, right? That's kind of, like, the way it's, it's like, the, the way it's phrased, right? Right, yeah. And sticky toffee pudding is, like, more like a cake. It's, it's a cake, right? So that's the thing. It's not, like, actually pudding. Just FYI, if you're wondering what a pudding is, it's not necessarily the Jello pudding, Cancel Bill Cosby style. It is actually the cake. Okay. Second question, fish and chips. Did you have fish and chips there, too? Yeah, the fish and chips there are so good. I mean, I didn't even really think of myself as someone who likes fish and chips or, like, seeks it out. Yeah. But theirs are really, really good. So I used to go to a place called Chip Shop. You ever go there in Brooklyn back in the day? Yeah, I remember that place. Back in the day. I always wondered if fish and chips was good. Because I never had—I used to eat it there, and I was like, this isn't very good. But it sounds like Dame has really—it's like— an actual food you want to eat. Yeah, it's really good. And definitely if you get the sticky toffee pudding. Yeah, sticky toffee pudding is the headline. Cool. Did you have a a dirty martini as well? You know, I did. I did have another martini. There you go. Week of martini. You're on a roll. When you you have that one, you're like, okay, I just want to be that. Like, is it a Vesper kind of week? Is it a Negroni kind of week? Is it a Faux-Groni kind of week? Totally, Yeah. yeah. What's your next three things? My last of three, I, I, was, I was away. I was in Michigan, and I was on the West Coast um, for a few weeks, and um, I got to spend some time in my hometown of Kalamazoo, which is a theme here on the Taste Podcast. Um, and I got to go to a restaurant that I visited as a child that was closing. It closed, actually. It, it's this weekend, but it'll be after you hear this, so it'll be closed already. It's called Food Dance. I've heard you talk about food dance. Food dance is, I'm wearing the t-shirt right now. I mean, food oh. dance, I'm literally wearing the t-shirt. Charlotte looks at me and it's like, that's a cool shirt. Um, <laughs> I must say, um, food dance was like a little bit in our family. It was not always our favorite restaurant. It was just kind of always there. But ultimately, when you realize that this a restaurant is going to restaurant heaven, you reflect on a restaurant being around for 28 years of your life. And you're like, that is very special. Um, but upon further thought and examination, this restaurant is actually very special objectively because the owner, Julie Stanley, ran it for 28 years. And what she did was, and I'm, I've been thinking about why is it so good? It's because what it did is it is channeled 
this blend of 60s, 70s, post-hippie boomerism with, like, this regional agriculture movement of West Michigan that is, I think, really articulated well um, at Bell's Brewery, which is Kalamazoo's probably most famous uh, business. It's it's an internationally known brewery, Bell's, as well as Zingerman's, which is just up the street in Ann Arbor. And so Food Dance did not, of course, get any of the press of those two establishments, but it still channeled this kind of this food that had a Midwestern root, but was a little, wasn't like Midwestern, like meat and potatoes or fish fry, Wisconsin. It's kind of like, like a little hippie, little liberal, like the food there, she would put a pad thai in the menu and it was great. It wasn't like a pad thai that you'd get in Thailand, but it was great. She would put on like homemade gelatos and ice creams, like, like uh, coffee ice cream, which, you know, back in like 1997, maybe that wasn't being done that much. So I have to respect food dance for what it what it did, which was it brought a, a, an elevated culinary experience to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and it will be forgotten. Did you have a go-to order when you would go there as a kid or as a teenager? I, I, you know, I, I oddly, I always ordered big salads there. I was kind of like a big salad, like chicken citrus dressing salad. Um, I, I felt like that was always something. The mac and cheese, I believe I ate a lot of at, at some point um, in my life. I think I definitely ordered a, a baked good here and there. Um, they have a really beautiful case. Um, and so rest in peace, food dance. Uh, may you never be forgotten. That's what I meant to say previously. And hey, maybe there'll be a second incarnation. That happens sometimes in the restaurant. So just putting it out there in the world. I hope so. What's your last of three, Anna? So this will not be the first time we've mentioned Eric Kim's name in this segment. His recipes have definitely popped up in the past. Yeah. Um, I just had, you know, a busy week, but I made his maple candied spam from Korean American. Yeah. Which is such a beautifully simple recipe. It's like a can of spam, a quarter cup of maple syrup, a pinch of garlic powder and like a little bit of sesame oil. And it's just like very simple, beautiful coming together of these few ingredients. And you can do a lot of different things with it. You could just eat it straight up as a snack. I think I had it with some like sauteed cabbage and a fried egg as lunch one day and then chopped it up really small and threw it into some fried rice another day. That would be great. So so just to be clear, you're you're coating the spam in the maple syrup and garlic powder. Are you are you heating it, you're sauteing it? Uh, he does it in the oven actually. Or oven so roast you, it, right? Yeah, you bake slices of spam until they get kind of brown and crispy and then you add the maple syrup just for the last ten minutes. Great. So it gets that like really thickened, like that glaze that just yeah. covers the outside. Yeah, really I really recommend it. I, I've cooked a lot from the book, and, and we just have to shout out Eric. He was uh, a guest on the Taste podcast and a friend of Taste and writer of Taste, and and he just hit the New York Times bestseller list this week. And not a, not a not an easy task, and he, he deserves all the credit. And, and the, I love the fact that this book is selling so well. And I I just I go back to his uh, black sesame cake, the mochi. It looks really good. I got to try that one. I've made it three times. I'm not the kind of guy who makes things three times. I I, I don't do that. It's it's really great. I think it's a crowd pleaser for a party. I think he has a pizza recipe that I've made. 
Oh, yeah. With ranch? <laughs> ranch and corn. Yeah, it's awesome. It's such a great... Yeah, Eric is amazing. And the the recipes, hands down, are some of the best I've made from a cookbook. So, so happy you brought up Eric. Yeah. Well, good to talk about our latest yeah. three things. We'll link to some of these recipes and spots in the show notes. Great. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, Anna. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>